Our studies this fall will be in the historic uh, book of 1 Samuel. So if you would try to, uh, to locate that, uh, I think in the order of service there's actually uh, the page number listed there, which would be 1 Samuel 16, page 238 in the Pew Bible. Uh, last fall we were also in uh, this book in 1 Samuel. Uh, and we made our way through uh, the life of, of Samuel, who as a young boy was set aside and consecrated for God's purposes to be uh, what would be the last judge in the people of Israel. By the way, this is kind of like, you know, you re-enter the episode and you say previously on uh, whatever. This is this is important. You know, don't go get popcorn and check out uh, right now. You know, you dial in. Uh, this is important. What happened was Samuel was appointed as as the last judge over the people of Israel. Very influential because uh, the Lord's uh, anointing was on him as a, as a priest and as a, a spiritual guide, a national prophet for the people of Israel. Israel was to be, uh, in the terms of, of you know, political science, a theocracy, where God, the Lord Yahweh, was to be the king of his people, uh, Israel, as a nation state. And, uh, and, and increasingly, the people said, you know what? We would rather have you know, our, our own king. Uh, we, we, they, they started to kind of gravitate towards uh, what they saw elsewhere. In fact, they cry out to Samuel, hey, listen, Samuel, uh, your, your time's wrapping up as, as our judge and overseer, and your sons don't walk in your way, so we want a king. Make and appoint for us a king to rule over us. Now, not, nothing in, intrinsically wrong with their desire to have uh, a king. The problem is that in 1 Samuel 8, it's recorded this, behold, uh, Samuel, you're old and your sons don't walk in your way. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. And get this. Here's, here's the line that makes it problematic. Like all the other nations. This is the problem. They saw the other nations, the pagan nations who didn't love or serve God, that had their multiple wives and they had their armies and they had their riches and prosperity. And they said, we want a king like, like them. And as one commentator, one author said, instead of being a light to the nations, they wanted to be like the nations. And it would be, it would be a, a very problematic uh, for them. So Samuel anoints uh, the first king of Israel, Saul. And what they saw in, in, in him and Saul uh, was, was kingly attributes. I don't know exactly what that is, but uh, you, know, you can imagine it's, it's the same thing that we sometimes gravitate uh, towards. It's well, it's recorded that, you know, he was someone who was 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 tall, that he was. In fact, this is the way that it's recorded, that he was uh, taller than, than anyone Saul was. And uh, he was handsome. And Samuel sets apart Saul. But then eventually, over time, in that 40 years of reign, Saul, who had the spirit of God, ended up not listening to the word of God. And, and went the way of, of disaster and began spiraling down. And it's told to him through Samuel, listen in 1 Samuel 13, your kingdom shall not continue, Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. The, the chapters right preceding to chapter 16, there's the spiraling going down and and, uh, and more and more, there's three particular occasions where we see Saul disobey uh, expressly uh, the word of the Lord. And it, it, means, it means problems and disasters for him and for the nation as their hearts are turned away. It's, it's that they wanted a king like Saul, like the other nations, and that they were in essence rejecting God as 
their king. Saul eventually goes mad. Uh, not, not, not only red face, you know, veins bulging mad, but like mad over time. And we're going to see that uh, in the weeks ahead. But now God has in mind and in view a new king. And so would you stand as we go and read this portion of his word that records this important transition. Now we're at a different, you know, a different era. There's a there's a significant shift that happens in first Samuel 16, because right preceding this, you see the last verse of chapter 15. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 16, hear this, God's word. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself, I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now he journeys over there, he gathers the family together, looking down at verse 6, this is what he says. All of them are gathered. He says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, this is one of Jesse's sons. He said, surely to himself, the Lord is anointed. The Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or his height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then one by one, the rest of the sons are brought forward. Jesse's next son, next son, next son. And and each of them, he says, no, this is not the one. And then he turns. And what do we find out? Except in verse uh, 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Hmm? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, well, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought to him, brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint for he is, this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servant who is before you to seek out a man who is skillful at playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from the God is is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servant, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the youngest men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech. And a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and young goat and sent them to David with his son David uh, to Saul. Verse 21, David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed as well and, and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Why don't we ask um, now for God's help 
Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for this time set apart to reflect on it. You know our hearts. You know our questions. Uh, You know this morning our struggles and our doubts and you know some of the places where we have agonies and apathies. And Lord, I just pray that if your spirit would work, we might see Jesus, the, the merciful Savior that he is, and our King. In his name we ask it. Amen. Uh, like me, uh, many of you who are uh, over the age of whatever, uh, 25, 26, uh, you like me recall yesterday you reflected back to where you were uh, this, this weekend, 9-11, 20 years ago. Where were you when you found out about the World Trade Center Towers? Where were you? Where were you standing? Uh, what, did, what did you hear? What did you watch on television A woman named Christina Stanton writes, reflecting on that day, just two months after we had moved into our apartment, my new husband, Brian, shook me awake, shouting, get up, get up. Someone has bombed the World Trade Center. They were living in New York City. I jumped out of bed and followed him to the French doors to our terrace on the 24th floor. Thick black smoke rolled out of the North Tower just Blocks away, emergency vehicles raced down the West Side Highway, lights flashing, sirens blaring. I looked down onto the street. People were running all, in all directions, some of them directly into traffic. And suddenly, something caught my eye. I saw a plane flying low, too low. With a deafening roar, the jet swooped like a hawk and banked to the left, its nose pointed straight at the South Tower. We felt rather than saw the impact. One moment we were standing on the terrace, and then I woke up in the living room floor. Brian, her husband, yelled, Christina, we've got to get out of here. We're being attacked. And they grabbed their dog, and they raced to the stairwell. And then she describes this pandemonium as they tried to venture down the the many flights and out into the the streets and into a, a, a park area. But they began to be covered by ash, and people were falling down all around them. And people were screaming as if they were about to die, and some did. As far as I could see, she writes, Brian and I were the only ones standing still. Nothing in our 18 months of marriage had prepared us for this madness. We turned toward each other. Brian, is is this it? Are we going to die? He hesitated and then he looked me in the eye. I don't know. Maybe, he said with sadness. Brian took my hand and began praying aloud. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As he recited the Lord's Prayer, Christina writes, I began my own silent entreaty. Lord, I'm so sorry I've spent lots of time doing life without you. That I have been I've not been serious in my relationship with you. I opened my eyes and my dream city was now a hellscape. Christina. But in the days and she she describes the, the aftermath of the attack. It seemed like there was very little that she had control over, although she was very much in control and things began to uh, you know, come unravel. They couldn't go back to their apartment, she writes, because it was part of the zone so close to the attack. And when they did, it was just a complete mess. And they found themselves over time and unemployed. They were struggling with PTSD, having troubles with sleeping. You get the picture. She meets up with a friend one afternoon. Uh, in, in September or early October, her name is Michelle, and she describes kind of all that's gone on and how they're struggling now. Although they had never been prior to this financially, she was saying, you should go uh, to my church. There's people all over the world, all over the country who've donated money to help out 
people in, in New York. And so go there. And she says, well, I'm not even a member. I don't even go to church, that church, uh, any church. Why? I can't go and I, I don't need help. There's other people that need help. But she relented and was uh, was willing. And she went to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And there were women there who greeted her and showed compassion and gave her money to cover their bills. And she was deeply touched and was grateful. And like many other people in the weeks following 9-11, churches across America, some of you would remember, were filled up the Sundays after that attack. A lot of people were, were asking questions. A lot of people, they were particularly uh, troubled, but nevertheless grateful for the help that Redeemer had given. They showed up at church. Uh, she and her husband, Brian, they heard Pastor Tim Keller preaching the gospel and speaking of the call to repentance and faith. And this is what she said. At that moment, the weight of, in, of the injustices I had been carrying around began to lift. I felt less like the world was against me, and I had a new desire to learn more about God. She said to herself, this totally resonates with me. Lord, I need you. I need you. I don't want all the good things you've given me, my husband, my talents, my work ethic, my love for this city, to be ultimate things that are above you. God, I want you. I want you. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 61 says that he went forth because he was supposed to proclaim the gospel, good news to the brokenhearted, to the poor, to those who mourn. And it says there to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a fainting spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then God, our God, the living God, the true and only God, is the one who works to bring and redeem things out of ashes. We know that. Christina's story is just one of many. Sometimes ashes and the sorrows, they lead people to despair. We know that too. And to hard-heartedness. And sometimes... It leads people, the ashes, like Christina, to an open heart and to hope, to embrace God, to surrender to God. So I just I say that because it's not it's not an indifferent thing. Where we are in our hearts. Where are you today? Where is your heart? Who or what who or what is governing your heart and, and, and I'm not talking when I say that what's got your emotions. I'm not talking about affections when I say heart. I'm talking about our allegiances. Who or what is king over your heart today? For Israel, for the people of God here to know peace and to know renewal, they need a new king. They need a king not like Saul. Saul, who had turned in on himself and turned away from God, who was like the other kings, they needed one who loved God, whose heart was aligned with God. And that's that's David. And David is a profound figure, also a flawed one, as some of you are aware, and all of us will discover in the weeks ahead. And I'm looking forward to it. There's really no one, and I mean this, no one in Scripture that we know more of the details of his entire life in all of Scripture than David. We're going to reflect on his life and who and what he points to over the next several weeks this fall. 
Here are two themes just from chapter 16 in this opening scene where we're introduced to David. Two themes that I I think we would see. One is the wisdom of God's choice and the other is the preparation of God's chosen, the chosen one, David. The wisdom of God's choice, and this is where I want to spend kind of the majority of my time and leave your Bible open. Whether we would like to admit it or not, friends, we are prejudiced. Maybe on different terms and for different reasons and different metrics and 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 we don't want to admit it, but we are. We we can be so prejudiced and we lack discernment because we are are inclined to be guided by our impressions and by by assumptions that we make. I mean, it's to be expected in some measure because we're not only we're not only fallible and finite and we don't know all things and we make assumptions and have to. It's that we're also sinful. We're also proud by nature. And even Samuel, but God is not, of course, he's not a fallible being. He's a perfect being. And and we see here that Samuel, even himself, even though he, of all people, should have known better, he too walks right in. And where does he gravitate? What does it say in verse verse 6 there? He goes to Eliab. And he assumes that presumably he is the oldest of Jesse's sons. And he says to himself, verse 6, surely this is the Lord's anointed. I mean, just look at him. His and our prejudice is based off of what? Externals. That could be a lot of things, Right. But he and we are corrected in verse 7. What does it say? This is important. It's a reminder to him and to us. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his height or his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When he said height and stature, it should have thrown us back. It should remind us of the very problem that we already knew with Saul. Because as I mentioned earlier, and I'll read the specific verse in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, it says this. This is why they thought that Saul was a kingly one, the one that they chose for themselves, that God allowed, but that they chose, this king, Saul. It says in Samuel, 1 Samuel 9, 2, And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among all the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Heads and shoulders above everyone. He looked like a king. We like this, don't we? No, we we, we tend to, to favor people who show evidence, who convey confidence and competence. We're inclined to people who, what? Look the part. Frankly, I mean, we we have to acknowledge this, and maybe it's just worth stating the obvious here, that we live in a time, a place, a culture where we are totally obsessed with outward appearance. Totally obsessed. And you don't have to look very far for illustrations and examples of this, and I won't even go into it because I think it's just obvious. We want to see things like strength and beauty and, and persuasive, smooth speech. We want this for our leaders. We want this for our spouses. We desire this in our friends. 
people who are charming, people who have charisma, people that we think uh, and estimate have competency or credentials of some form or fashion. And this, even above and before, character. Here's wisdom, okay? I, 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 I love wisdom literature. The wisdom literature of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, it just nails us all the time, directs us in so many ways. Here's one of them. Proverbs 30, 31. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain or fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Both those things can be gone just like that. And both those things can be empty and vain and shallow. And yet we just chase it and prize it and pursue it all the time. Sadly, this is even true in the church. We gravitate towards people who are, are in, in, in leaders and speakers and authors and pastors who are impressive. Who are impressive by the world's metric. I was listening to a pod, I've been listening for several weeks to a podcast that just traces the disaster of this in many churches in America where people and in other places where people exalt pastors who are, you know, in that in that ilk, that impressive person that is that is uniquely and extremely gifted. But in the end are narcissists and one Christian psychologist, Diane Langberg, reflects on this. I think in our country, we as Christians have ceased to think about the most important thing, and that is that we would be like Christ. I mean, meaning our our leaders and our churches. That's not what we've been doing. We have been garnering fame and numbers and money and alignment with secular powers that make us look good and baptizing the whole darn thing. And I think that's been going on my whole lifetime, she says, and I'm 72. And here in the story, going back to 1 Samuel, it shouldn't surprise us that God chooses the youngest, least likely, most smelling little teenage boy who's a shepherd. And to the world, that seems, that seems risky at best and, and foolish at most. I mean, it's, it doesn't seem right. It's hazardous. But the wisdom of God... Should not surprise us. By the way, it's not a bad thing to be good looking. Okay? Maybe that just needed to be said for some of you. Even David, maybe you picked up on the contradiction. It may be seen that David himself, we read here, was was ruddy. He was tanned. And he was handsome. He had good looking eyes. In the end, your appearance does not qualify you or disqualify you. What matters in the end is the heart. That's all that matters. That's where God looks. We look at externals because that's what we can see, right? So often, that's not the only thing we can see over time. We can discern and part someone's character. But you, that's primarily where we look. And we can become, as I said earlier, preoccupied with outer appearance. We've become preoccupied. It's actually what we value. That's why we judge on the basis of that. It's because that's what we treasure. We like people who have lots of possessions. Who's got the biggest pile of stuff? 
Who has the best reputation and, 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 and looks and who has the most tangible worldly pleasures and experiences? Nothing wrong with those things inherently, but it cannot, it should not, it must not rule our hearts. And I, I, I mean, I'm saying this as someone who struggles. I, 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 it's, a tr- it's a tremendous struggle internally for me. And it's pretty sobering. I don't know if you picked up on it. Just the nature of that last part of verse 7. It's pretty scary even to think. The Lord looks on the heart. He sees it all. He knows it all. Every thought, every you, that none, nothing can be hidden. He knows all of it. What does that mean, by the way? When we talk about heart, I said it earlier, we're not talking about affections. When, when the Bible uses this term, and it uses it a lot, the term heart, we're not talking about emotions or, or intentions primarily. We're, we're talking about uh, something deeper, some, something more inward and, and essential to our, our, our being as individuals. Sometimes we talk about people's lifestyles and behaviors, and then we kind of pull up short as if everybody's heart is good. Frank, you know Frank. He's made a lot of you know pretty bad choices, and he's got himself in, a, in some pretty significant trouble. But he's, he's, got, he, he's got a good heart. He does. I'm kind of confused right now. In the South, we, we have a whole other way of looking at this. We have a whole strategic, snarky, sarcastic way of dealing with this when we say, well, bless his heart. Frank, he's got a good, bless his heart. Mary Beth, she isn't stupid. She just had a lot of bad luck with thinking, bless her heart. We can dress up. We can dress up an entire insult in the South. Well, Leonard, did y'all hear about Leonard? He blew up in front of his boss and lost his job again. Bless his heart. What are we talking about? The heart. It's not our outer person. It's our inward person. Essentially, the scripture uses terms like mind and soul and will and spirit. And all of these are kind of subsumed underneath the term heart. It is, as Counselor Paul Tripp says, the heart is the causal core of our life and being. And I know how it is because sometimes when we think about our lives, we want to point to people and circumstances as if that's what causes us to act and think and behave in the way that we do. But really, it's not. That might expose our hearts, but it's our hearts ultimately that is the cause of those things. Our heart guides our words and actions. God looks at the heart. The world so often does not. And by the way, because of that, God does not fooled. God is not impressed with our wealth. God is not fooled with our reputation or our appearance or how we measure up or compare to somebody else. God is not fooled with our accomplishments, not even our religious ones. God wants for me, God wants for you, our hearts. He has David's. And David 
though at times, as we discover and some of you well know, abandons God's wisdom and law like Saul, the difference is that David returns and his heart is soft and it is surrendered in repentance before God. And as we just read, the text says that the spirit, verse 14, departed Saul. Now, that, that, that's different. The operation of the, you know, because he abandoned the word of God and abandoned the ways and wisdom of God, the spirit was lifted. That's not how it works for us. The spirit of God in the new covenant and for those united to Christ have the spirit once for all. That would, would fill us and, 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 and guide us and produce fruit. But for the Spirit of God to be anointed on a leader in the Old Testament, it was for a task and a responsibility and an office. And when that was done, the Spirit, in this case, left Saul. And then it, it makes its way to, to David. And that's where we see here the irony of God's working. He's equipping and anointing David for a task. So this is where I'm going to move on to this next observation, our theme of how God's preparation is for his chosen. Now, just briefly, I want to highlight just God's sovereign work, his providence uh, in raising up a king and preparing young David. Now, we can only uh, imagine what's going through David's mind when they, 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 they have him kneel. And then and Samuel begins to pour olive oil over his head. I mean, and the spirit of God rushes upon this man. I just can't imagine what he's thinking. And someone maybe whispered in his ear as he thinks to himself, what's happening? You, you, David, are the next king over God's people. I mean, I'm not prepared. I'm not ready. This is not. But indeed, he was and he would be. And it's just interesting that God even orchestrated it, unbeknownst entirely to Saul, that he would go because of his musical talent and be in the king's court all of this time to prepare him to be a royal king and ruler. That was part of the whole, the whole deal. One of the things I think is pretty interesting in this, this case where Saul has this harmful or evil spirit that's upon him. He's distressed. He's troubled. Saul's going mad. And the only thing that can help him is a real thing, by the way, music therapy. But that's the only thing that can help him because he doesn't have the spirit of God. And some people in the world, that's all they have is, is music therapy, sadly enough. How much greater it would be if he had the spirit? Indeed, that is the case with David. If you look at verse 18, what does it say? The Lord, this is all of all the things that he has as a man of valor, as a poet, is the Lord is with him. And he's, he's growing, he's, he's maturing, and God is preparing him. But even before that, how was God preparing a king? Because before he even became this talented, sought-after musician in the king's court and an armor-bearer of, 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 of favor with the king, who he didn't even know that the war, that was the one that was going to succeed him. And we're going to see all of the drama that surrounds that in weeks ahead, and it's, it's pretty startling. Before all of that, in God's sovereign economy... In his plan, David is just a shepherd. Ezekiel 34, I will establish, this is God's word, one shepherd over them, the the, the wayward ones, the, the lost ones, the hurting ones, the foolish ones, his people whom he loves. He says, I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, my servant David 
He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And it's so it's wonderful. One commentator put it best. He said, listen, David's job description didn't change when he got anointed and took the throne later. His job description didn't change. Just his flock. David's kingdom is promised here to be an eternal kingdom because uniquely it points to another king. Prophet Isaiah says that Jesus would come and he would be of the stump of Jesse, of the lineage of David, born in a what? Little, lowly town of Bethlehem. Same as David. Unlikely. Matthew 2, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd My people, Israel. Friends, we're going to see this time and time again that David, as we look on his life, is a forerunner to the anointed final ultimate king, Jesus, who is also a shepherd. As as we well know, it looks Jesus, he he makes his way into the city of Jerusalem and he looks upon them and he, he has compassion in his heart because they are lost like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus says explicitly, John 10 I am the good shepherd. And, and, and we need a good shepherd. <laughs> and he goes further because he lays down his life for his sheep. Kings, King David's kingdom would be earthly. Jesus Christ would be heavenly. David went on to make sacrifices for the people of God. And Jesus would become the sacrifice. David would be king over Israel and Jesus will one day be the king of all the nations. Give him today, friends, the rule of your heart. Because it's only he who can who can cleanse and then align and realign our hearts, which which can be deceitful and which can be dark and which which can be twisted and focused on the outward appearances. God looks And he knows our hearts. But you should give him and I should give him rule and reign over my heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And Jesus was God's own heart on full display. How do we know? What do we know? Well, we covered it last week. He is gentle. What's his heart like? He is gentle and lowly, full of compassion and love. Come to him. Father, we do come to you. And we ask that you, even as we surrender, that you would deal with our hearts, the core of our being, that you would bring transformation. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for King David and his royal line. Oh, that we might treasure um, the greater son and greater King David, Jesus. Help us in our hearts to be more aligned with you. Uh, Lord, would you guide us, our resurrected living Good shepherd away from sin and away from self. Bless our community and our responsibility, even if we might uh, think and assume that we uh, outwardly are are weak and struggling, that you prize and have purposes uh, for these. Lord, I I, I pray even as I should have last week uh, for for teachers, for educators, for people in school leadership in our towns and homes and communities. Lord, I pray today that you this fall 
uh, would be with students, that you would grant them joy. You would grant teachers joy and strength and you would grant students joy and curiosity and wisdom and their calling as learners. May they be light to others, those in our church. Lord, I think of and we, we lift up and pray for those who are burdened with loneliness and with sickness that is lingering. Lord, even with, with people who deal with distress, especially, Lord, in light of what we remember in the 20 years past and this unjust and evil events that surrounded 9-11, we know there are still people who experience great pain and trauma and grief. Lord, have mercy on them. May they experience compassion and hope and may they see it coming from you their maker and lord unlike the days that followed 9 11 in this country where people were unified sadly enough we are so polarized and there's discord and i i ask that you would bring humility and unity to our country we don't deserve it we pray that mercifully you do it please be lord with those who grieve the loss of family and friends those who deal with the impacts of this pandemic that lingers, and we do pray that you would restrain the spread of COVID here and abroad. Lord, we pray for leaders and people in our nation and elsewhere in the world who are trying to make significant and important decisions. Lord, help us even in that to remember full well who is our real governor and king and where our real citizenship lies. Lord, please bring us a repentance by your spirit, renewal, even revival in our community. Lord, I pray that you'd mercifully teach us, that you'd even grow us in our pains, in our struggles, in our disappointments. And we know you can do it. You are a God of redemption. We pray with confidence even now. As you taught your disciples to pray in Jesus' name, as he taught them, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand and sing to this King who does deserve all the glory.